May 25th at Largo at the Coronet in Los Angeles, we're doing a live Dead Pilot Society. Our first ever open to the public Dead Pilot Society. You remember Dead Pilot Society. It was created by Andrew Reich, who brought me in, and uh, we do readings of pilots that were bought and developed, but never produced. So it's the first time that anyone, including the writers, are getting to hear a table read of their pilot. We're doing two pilots on May 25th, one by me and Ben Acker, and it's a cool thing that we really love, so I hope you'll come check it out. And one by Matt Gorley, uh, podcaster extraordinaire, super ego, I was there too, more, and Amanda Lund, actor and writer extraordinaire, Ghost Girls, you've seen it, uh, and there's this, about a theme park, uh, and they both worked in the theme park, so it's a real fun inside uh, sort of comedy thing. I hope you will come check that out. We have announced some cast. Let me tell you about them. How about Rachel Bloom, writer and creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? She's going to be in it. Kiernan Shipka, Sally Draper from Mad Men. She's in also uh, The Legend of Korra. Andrew Daly, co-creator and star of Review. He's on Comedy Bang Bang. He is incredibly funny. Know who else is incredibly funny? Steve Agee. You know him from the Sarah Silverman program, from The New Girl. Mark Evan Jackson from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, from Thrilling Adventure Hour. Also from Thrilling Adventure Hour, Craig Kakowski, Also from Drunk History. These are just a few of the people who are going to be performing the scripts by Akron Blacker, by Matt and Amanda, and we're doing a third secret script that we can't tell you about, but you better be there to find out what it is. It's going to be really cool. That is all on May 25th at Largo at the Coronet. You can find out about getting tickets uh, by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com or uh, just show up. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. Please give a round of applause to Shane Black. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. I drive by this place all the time, and I heard they did shows and things. This is really kind of neat. Um, let me ask you this. Yes. We were talking a little bit um, in the green room about comic books, and it's only suiting. We're here in a comic book store. Were you a comic book kid growing up? Yeah. I, I, I read comic books all the time, but 
in the 60s and early 70s mostly. So for me, it was all about Steve Ditko, Jack mm-hmm. Kirby, Jim Steranko, you know. And comic books back then had a lot of panels to them. And you, it took you, if you're a kid like me, it took maybe, you know, 30 minutes to read a comic book. <laughs> it was a real endeavor. You sat down, you really got engaged, you were involved. And, and now it's, the problem I have is I open a copy of Guardians of the Galaxy, good as it might be, done. <laughs> it's all just big pictures of them in space with a couple little dialogue balloons. And the art is fantastic. I have no problem with the art. But unless you're going to hang it on your wall, it's not going to take up much of your time. And I used to go to comic books to really lose myself. And you can't lose yourself anymore in any single issue of a comic book because it's over too quickly. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Are you, were you, when you were a kid reading these things, was it... Because you were a superhero kid, were you an action kid? Did you always? I guess what I'm really getting at is, were you always a writer? Were you looking at stories? Yeah, I mean, I was. Uh, I come from a family of readers. Um, mm-hmm. I learned to read from the books I found on my father's shelf. All the old detective things, like Shell Scott by Richard Pryor. And just for anybody know who Shell Scott is? <laughs> Zero. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Or uh, Milo March. Yeah. These are the, the, the figures. They sort of, you had Chandler and you had uh, Ross McDonald and all these sorts of acknowledged greats in the detective field. But then there were these unsung sort of lesser known heroes in the 60s and the 70s and the 50s. Where you, the, the covers, were, these were those books. These were those books where Robert McGinnis did this great artwork. Uh, with, you know, these sort of half-clad ladies with their bras hanging over and perched on a desk with a gun and a guy sort of on the floor with a bruise, you know. And this was, these were, I collected, you know, uh, all of them. I have every one. And um, I think that there's just such a wonderful idea to find, not just mind great literature, sometimes where the skill is so great, it hides the technique, but to read these little sort of pot boiler novels and derive from them the little diamonds, the gems in the mud. Well, you can learn a lot when you can see the seams. Yes. Right? You see what works and you see what doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about the nice guys. Okay. <laughs> where, where did this movie come, to, come from? And what I'm really curious about is where does it fit into the movies we know you from? Is this in line with a Shane Black movie? I think, I think what you get when you see The Nice Guys is, uh, is pretty indicative, not just of me, but of the guy who championed it and believed in it for the longest time. That's Joel Silver. Mm-hmm. And, uh, How so? How does it reflect your point of view and his point of view? Well, I think there was an old school t- uh, sensibility that Joel embodies having been in the business as long as I have and he has. You know, I um, I wish that I was young and beautiful like you people out there. <laughs> I'm, in fact, you know, a bit older than that, and I've just celebrated, you know, my 31st year in, in movies. Yeah. So, no, that, no, that's... <laughs> Listen, you're, you're still here. I'm still... Yeah, that's the thing. And I, I truly... The reason I'm so happy about The Nice Guys in, in, is it still reflects what I want and what I'm trying to do. And in addition, it also... I came up with guys in the business who I admired who I thought were so much better in, than I was. 
And I watched them fall by the wayside. I don't hear their names anymore. Who were some of these guys that, that you came I, up I with? I don't want to say their names. Really? Now they're shit. They don't work anymore. I mean, I don't want to go... Who were, all right, let me rephrase. All right. who, were some of the, who were some of the guys that inspired you? Well, for instance, when's the last time you saw a movie by, written by William Goldman? He's essentially in retirement, you know? Um, younger guys, too. There, were used to, there was a whole hassle of action writers like Cash and Epps and Shrike and Butler. Uh, where are they? They were writing concurrently with me, and somehow, mysteriously, I'm still viable making movies at a level that's fairly, you know, high profile after 30 years, and by the way, not 30 well-spent, well-behaved years either. (laughs) And I don't know to what I I owe that degree of benevolence or blessing. I feel like I am, in fact, so lucky and to even have people show up here. At 30 years, people are, you know, they're, they're trying to get a job. They're living on a corner. They don't have people come to see them. <laughs> the fact that you're here means so much to me. The fact that there is a response to the types of things that, uh, that I'm still trying to do. Or maybe you just had nothing to fucking do on a Sunday. <laughs> but, but either way. Let me ask you, what, having been in this, this industry for 30 years, what does happen to a writer, you know, as he has some, some you're big out of the gate, right, as mm-hmm. a, a lot of young writers can be. But what happens after that? How does the industry either keep you going or get rid of you? Well, there's dangers to being big out of the gate. I mean, I, wouldn't, I would wish for you, all of you, the degree of success that I was able to have. Uh, that said, there's certain pitfalls you might want to be aware of. And, uh, you know, I, I sold scripts at the beginning. I made these sort of, did these sort of pulp movies that were important to me. And I thought that I tried very hard. You know, I wrote scripts that I thought were wrought, not just written. But that's why they call playwright, by the way, it's, it's W-R-I-G-H-T <laughs> instead of W-R-I-T-E. It's because plays are not written, they're wrought. <laughs> you know, and it's true. It's, there's an effort that goes into things. And I had a theatrical background. I was a theater major. So what I wanted to do was... You shake it up, really do my best to not just sort of try to be a hack who gets over on people. And here's, by the way, a lesson for writers. I hear this all the time, and I'm sure one of you in the audience has said it. They said, you know, I I watched TV the other night. I saw an episode of that, you know, Two and a Half Men. It was terrible. I mean, I I could do that. I mean, I should be writing in TV because I can be that shitty. (laughs) As though Hollywood owes you a career because somehow... Your bad writing is slightly less bad than someone else who acts, you know, some asshole is stupid enough to watch. And the point is that your aspiration to mediocrity is of no interest to me. The fact that... (laughs) Wanting to just get over on Hollywood, somehow trick them into allowing you in the club, as opposed to having something that whether or not they like it, it's what you fucking like. Yeah. Well, tell us about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about the, the first scripts that you wrote, whether or not anyone bought them. Because they, they must have been yeah. very personal to you. They must have been things you wanted to write. Well, everyone bought them. They were fucking great. I mean, I, I sold everything. <laughs> I couldn't stop typing. There was knocking on the door. I basically, I, I, I was very lucky up front. I sold scripts. And here's the problem. I sold them for, at the time, what was an enormous amount of money. And by the way, it's still an enormous amount of money. Um, so... <laughs> I was considered this sort of entrepreneur. Instead of a guy who had written scripts he cared about, I was viewed as the successful guy who had 
managed to trick Hollywood into paying me by hacking out these sort of real punchy, pulpy pot boilers that they then rewarded me way too handsomely for. <laughs> um, here's the extent of that. Not only did I have articles calling me a hack, you know, people like Peter Bart, but my friend Dale Lawner, who's a wonderful writer, um, said, hey, man, let me sponsor you into the Motion Picture Academy, you know, the MPAA. The Academy votes on the Oscars, and you just need some people to sign you in. I said, yeah, I'd like to, to vote, so sure. They sponsored me, they submitted me, and I got a letter back from the head of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. Now, at the time, the, the category, the, the, the standards they had, that you had to have, at least at that time, two pieces of produced work of substantive merit, quote-unquote. I had The Monster Squad, Lethal Weapon, Longest Goodnight, Last Boy Scout, Last Action Hero, Lethal Weapon 2. You know, I had like six movies, and they'd made over a billion dollars. And the letter came back. So, Mr. Black, after reviewing your submission, we've decided it's not appropriate this time for you to join the Academy, but perhaps you can reapply when you have more credits. <laughs> and I realized that's, this isn't my imagination anymore. These people are angry that this high-priced hack... They don't even know, but they make a, they're assuming, they don't know that my living room is full of books and that I sit there lonely at night just reading Edwardian horror stories, you know. <laughs> they think there's some nude chick sitting on a shelf throwing, you know, Cheez-Its in my mouth. <laughs> and that I'm laughing at them burning, you know, $100 bills as I light my cigarette. So there was this perception, and it really hurt my feelings. I allowed myself, unfortunately, to be really sensitive about it and said, no, you don't understand. I just really want to be a good writer. I'm really trying hard with this. And so it threw me for a loop. Sure. Um, it, it just knocked me down. And that's, there are obstacles like that all the time because the perception and the, the cruelty and the, all this stuff. Hollywood is – I always urge people to be positive uh, it's so easy, for instance, let's say you see a movie and maybe it's not your favorite movie. How easy, you walk out of that movie and I hear someone say, oh, that's not going to make a dime. You know, da, da, da. And I want to say to them, excuse me, I just heard you say something very negative walking out of that premiere. You know, that must have been very hard for you in a cynical, awful place like Hollywood to be negative and criticize snarkily someone else's hard work. That must be so difficult. What a what a high road you've taken, you know. <laughs> As opposed to just, yeah, maybe it didn't, I didn't like it, but we're all in this fucking thing together. we got to love each other, you know? It's interesting to me, you know, I think the thing that we look for from any writer to call him a writer of worth in any medium is uh, something personal Alcoholism. being said. <laughs> That's any writer. Um, something personal being said. And you look at your body of work and you see themes recur. There has to be something personal said in those even if it's just about the kinds of stories you're telling. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's the roots of whatever spoke to me or what speaks to you as you, you know, grow up and have your resources and your influences clarify themselves. The things you find yourself drawn toward more and more coming back to. It'll be different for every person, but... I think that it is important to sort of not necessarily define or say to yourself, this is the kind of movie I do, but to just know that there's something working there. Mm -hmm. 
so that at the end of the day, maybe it takes you doing 10 scripts before you look back in retrospect and say, you know, I seem to be writing about mom and, and son a lot, or I sure seem to be obsessed with the concept of people being knocked down at the end of their careers and then somehow finding the spark within them to sustain and get back up. There's things that you'll discover you didn't know you believe in. And you'll end up in your script saying all these wonderful things you didn't know you had to say. You didn't know you knew. And it, sometimes until you say it, you won't know it. You just write by instinct, I think. And what emerges based on the influences that you've got behind you and the experiences you undergo, a style and a breath and a shape emerges in the work of what kind of things are important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest nightmare is that I'll write something and I'll put a lot of work in it. At the end of the day, I go, it's kind of fluffy. It's just not, it's, it's not real substantive. It's funny. There's this, but it's very glib. It's just, there's not much to it. Yeah. And one of the reasons we shook up Iron Man 3 or tried to a little bit was I thought we needed to do something besides crash suits together and blow shit up. I mean, we had to try as best we could to investigate Iron Man for what Iron Man might actually have underneath that no one had found yet or what it might be trying to say. That said, I got death threats. (laughs) (laughs) What was my favorite? Uh, Burn in hell, you cocksucker, for what you did to Iron Man 3. I want to put my fist through your measly, faggy face. (laughs) That was was the good one. They know it's about a guy in a metal suit, right? I wanted to say, I'm not a fag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Take the most important thing from that, by all means. I almost wore my gay okay t-shirt. <laughs> I just got it in the mail. Um, I, I ordered the, the LGBT legislation that Mike Pence did in Indiana. It was so infuriating to me that I actually ordered a gay okay t-shirt that just got here. So This would have been the right crowd. Yeah. <laughs> But people, that's the other thing. People think I'm like some kind of tough guy because I write tough guy things. I'm a wimp. <laughs> well, let me ask you that. What are you, what are you working out with your scripts? <laughs> you know, do you, do you have, you must have the self-awareness to look back on the stuff you've written and say, here's the issue I was tackling. Here's what I had to say in this script. I, I, I didn't, I, look, I went to my shrink yesterday, Bal. <laughs> uh, you didn't know. You could have skipped yeah. it. <laughs> I could have skipped I think that um, William Goldman has a line in one of his books at the end um, of control. I don't know if everyone read that, but it's good for (laughs) get the same if you say like Manalapa, New Jersey, you get that same response. (laughs) Um, And the, the last line of the book is sadness and friends. What else is there? And it's remarkable in its terseness and its simplicity because really, oh my God, sadness and friends, what else is there? And I think that in a way that speaks to me. I used to read a lot about people would come together, lonely people on Christmas Eve, and they'd forge this sort of bond and have this adventure that something would call to them, even when they felt their lives were expended, their usefulness over, that they somehow found a horizon that could still beckon to them, even briefly, and alert them to one more adventure they hadn't had. And at the end, they would all sort of look at each other and shake hands, and they'd walk away, having experienced something together. 
And there was a bitter sweetness, even in the books I loved as a kid, like The Trumpet of the Swan, like The Cricket in Times Square. The melancholy in these stories, these children's books, really struck me that you didn't have to be happy with all cheery, you know. Uh, I still like Beverly Cleary. There's not a lot of, you know, suicide in those, but the... But the great children's classics, Charlotte's Web, even Bambi, they're filled with an essential sense of, of just life intruding upon your illusions of what you, of the innocence that you're desperately clinging to. And in private eye novels, guess what? The, the fracturing of innocence and the desperate attempt on the part of certain people, in this case, I think the private eye, uh, nice guys, for instance, to me is all about saving little girls. And it could be a little girl, literally like the daughter in the movie, played by Angari Rice, or it could be a porn star who is killed, who essentially never got over the fact, you know, you go to her bedroom, there's still her teddy bear there. She's a porn star, but that doesn't matter. She's a little girl, and she got killed. And these are guys who, knights in tarnished armor, there's, you know, and the trick, of course, is how tarnished can you make it and still have them mm-hmm. respond and come back with some degree of nobility. But it's at some level, they understand that, you know, we live in a corrupted world. In the nice guys, it's 1970. There's a crust of smog over the city. The Hollywood signs in tatters and no one bothered to fix it. Hollywood Boulevard is a cesspit. You can't let your kids walk because every other storefront is XXX. <laughs> and they even had air raid sirens that would go off. When I was a kid, a teenager in L.A., saying, go back indoors. And don't let your kids play ball until after six because the pollution's so bad they might hurt themselves. And we actually fixed that problem, you know, which is really remarkable. But back then, there was this wonderful compromised feeling to Los Angeles. And I love this notion that on those compromised streets walk the tarnished knights. Not the cool guys. The ones that aren't cool at all, but understand on some basic level that little girls ought to be protected. And given the chance to at least grow up with a modicum of faith and hope. That the, you know, the, the pretty little doll you give them to play with ought really to be something they can cherish and not something that's going to be ripped from them along with their faith. And that's, to me, the, the underpinning, the serious underpinning of nice guys. And then, of course, there's jokes all through it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it go down, right? Um, you know, you talk about the tarnished heroes, and we've seen in over a dozen movies your version of that tarnished hero, but you've worked in the studio system. Uh-huh. Where you know you get a lot of you get a lot of notes you get a lot of oversight. Uh, have 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 executive pushed back on how how tarnished your heroes can be? Over the course of thirty years, yeah, it's really been remarkable. Some of the. Um, and I wonder how that's changed. Well, look for instance at Lethal Weapon. That was the first film I, I wrote back in the eighties. Do not. <laughs> yeah, it starred Mel Gibson. Applaud for that. Um, but you know initially this is a guy who wanted we had the scene where you know he wants to literally you know take pills kill himself blow his head off and every night he toys with that and then puts the thing away for one more night and as long as you know it's this sort of escape route that's available to him he'll push the envelope further and further toward dying okay 
cut to the studio meeting, they're not a hero who's suicidal. That's the core of it. That's, that's kind of why the series succeeded. They didn't like it at first. Sure. Couldn't he just be a really good cop? <laughs> you know? And the title, Lethal Weapon, doesn't test well with women. I said, well, what do you want to call it? Hot Shots. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So it was almost, you know, it, it could easily have been... And, and that's the other thing, is nowadays you do have the hot shot. You have Kevin Hart and someone... You know, and or you have Will Smith and uh, what's it, Martin Lawrence, and these are they're entertaining at some level, but there's no attempt made to tarnish them. It's all just about jokes and stuff. And here's what I think the difference is, and maybe some of you will identify with or respond to this: is that if you hand me a thriller and tell me put some laughs in it, I go, okay, good, cool, good, I, I, I can do that. If you hand me a page of blank space and say, write a comedy, I fr I'm frozen. I can't just write jokes. And that's the difference, I think. I have to start with something besides the, you know, the basic task, make it funny. Um, How, let me ask you, just to follow up on that, uh, uh, on what you said previous about getting those notes and, you know, can he just be a good cop? Lethal Weapon is your first big sale. How do, you, how do you as a young writer fight back on that? How do you push back that note? Well, I had a director do it for me. Dick Donner was actually well known enough, you know. Um, but here's the other thing, is that people do say that. That's an interesting question, because they get it a lot. They say, God, you know, when, when the studio buys your script, they can do anything to it, right? I go, yes, they can. They, they own it. They can fire you. He goes, well, how, I, how can you do that? How can you sell a script and then just know that they, they're going to change everything? I said, because, just because they have the ability doesn't mean you have to be a defeatist. It, it doesn't mean they can and will. You still have the ability as an artist to argue vehemently, strenuously, effectively, passionately for the things that you perceive. Don't yell at them, but convince them. And that's the thing. Writers panic because they go, oh, they'll fuck me. It's like, well, convince, say don't fuck me, but don't say it like that. Convince them not to. <laughs> Show them how fucking you is potentially hazardous. It's <laughs> <laughs> maybe not the best pickup line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But use your skills, use your abilities. You know, William Goldman talks about that one writer he had breakfast with because the guy wrote him a really interesting, well-written query letter. He said, this guy can write. You know, so obviously, if you just submit to the... And this leads me to another point. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you ask a question. I'm going to let you finish. I'll take a break. <laughs> but I just want to say, Beyonce's album... <laughs> um... What I say to a lot of people is that you live in a world, if you're a writer, if you want to be a producer, actor, you know, anything, you know. 93%, even 94 at any given point of your trade union is going unemployed. So everyone who wants to do it isn't doing it. In fact, there's only 6 7% at a given time of the people desperate to do it out of the thousands who get to. And 94% are unemployed, which makes you dumb because it's stupid to be in a profession where 94% unemployment exists. Now, here's the good news. That 94% 
is used to describe the sort of great unwashed, you know, hoi polloi of everyone trying. Talent changes everything. Because now you can be one of the group, but there's something you have that the guy standing in line grudgingly next to you doesn't, the talent. So that obviates that. It takes the odds and switches it round. It's, in a way, your ticket to the front of the line because talent takes you out of the pool. It makes it special, it makes you different, and it gets you to the front of the line. Now, here's the bad news. Most of you don't have talent. <laughs> Keep in, keep in mind, your ticket was a donation to 826LA. So even if you want to leave, you can't get to money And I can back. say, no, come on, man, I can say that because everyone's looking at the guy, yeah, he's right, that guy doesn't have talent, you know. Some of you know who you are. You do, some of you do, and some of you will succeed, and some of you won't. But you're all still young and beautiful, and I wish it was you, no matter who you are. So l- let me ask you this. I mean, we're talking about talent. We're talking about defending your script. All of this means, you know, the script itself has to be bulletproof. What, let, let's kind of dig deep on your process. You know, when you're working on a script, are you working on something right now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're doing The Predator. Oh, right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have a follow-up. Will, will you remind me to ask a follow-up question on that? Thank you. Um, <laughs> Didn't you? Why that guy to remind me? <laughs> I have my reasons. <laughs> Uh, so you're working on the script. What, what does a day look like for you when you're working on something? How do you, how do you even start? Bowel movement. <laughs> Absolutely. Coffee assisted? Uh, that, that's the second one. <laughs> I told you, we're going to get into it. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what it comes down to, I think. And um, I've said this before, is everyone has their routine. What I found is effective... Uh, from a standpoint of process is that if you try to grab an hour, I have a friend who works and has a kid. He's like, yeah, maybe after work tonight I'll get in an hour and then before uh, on Sunday, before my wife comes home, I can just do you know some and then I got to pick up my kid at five, but maybe uh, late at night I'll get a half hour. That piecemeal approach never worked for me. The idea of grabbing, snatching an hour here, 15 minutes there to try to do something as difficult and concentrated as writing. So I would say, A, block out a piece of time. Give yourself a week. You may waste the first two days, but you've got four more, five more left. You know, that's the point. Um, Also, I find something really powerfully effective about making every day the same. If you get up and you sort of make your coffee, you eat the eggs, you sit down, you take last night's pages and you sort of go through them again, the 24-hour test. You make some corrections. You set them aside. You take your outline and you start a scene. You stop. You walk the dog. You come back. You look at the corrections again that make sense. Now you type those in and make them neat. Now go back to the scene. Finish the scene. It's rough. It's on a typewriter. Okay, transfer it to the computer. Now it's lunch. Okay, you know what? I want to watch that show in the afternoon. This is my hour to watch the show. Go outside now. Pace around. Smoke two cigarettes. Come back in. Okay, now it's 6 o'clock at night. Finish up, make your corrections, tidy the scene, 24-hour test, stick it in the box. Don't look at it again. I'm going to look at it in the morning because that's my process. Every day, and you get up and you do the same thing the next day, and every day the same. And what happens after two or three days is you get momentum. It becomes routine. It becomes, I, I don't, I'm not flailing. I know what comes next. I'm not just swiping in the dark here. It's a process that becomes problem-solving instead of fear. 
And that, to me, essentially is what writing is, because I'm terrified when I look at the blank page. I'm so fearful. And yet, every once in a while, in the middle of that, I'll say, I can't do this. I can't. I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. What if he says this here? I don't, I don't even know how. Well, okay, I guess he could say that. And then this character says, this. <laughs> wait a minute. That would be good if he said that. And, and what happens is you just do it until your mind is distracted, until it finds something in the moment that's temporarily more interesting than your own fear. Honestly, you're afraid, 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 and then you get distracted, and your mind will do it. will latch on to something, and now you get to that wonderful place where instead of fearful flailing, you're in the land of problem-solving. Instead of, can I do this? It's like, fuck, I got a problem to solve here. How do I do this? And then you can't stop doing it. Then you're pacing around, figuring out how to solve your problem. And so when fear becomes problem-solving, that's when writing, to me, begins. It's great advice. Now you should clap. <laughs> What, uh, just, just to get a little into the nuts and bolts of it, what do your outlines look like when you're working on a movie? Um, How thorough are they? I don't outline. I, I do these, uh, I just do cards. Okay. I do, I, you know, I sit with people, I'll sit with my writing partner, and we just hash it. We mm-hmm. go through and we, you know, try to figure out what the knit of the thing is. What's the point? Why are we telling the story? What's it about? Because if you're just doing events and it's not about anything, then just relegated to the bin until you come up with some kind of central spine. And finding the spine is important. Finding the images that you want to see is important. To me, also, trailers are important. Uh, I always write the trailer in my head of a movie because it starts to sum up the images and the shape of what I want to see. For instance, how many times have you gone to see a trailer for a movie, a preview, and it's like, looks so good, looks great, and then you see the movie and Shit. What happened? It's because everything that's already written, everything that's, every good movie is already written, every version, the perfect, you know, suspense thriller, the perfect monster movie, anything, the perfect drama starring this actor with this woman, it exists out there as a platonic and you're just chipping away at everything that doesn't look like the elephant and trying to reveal the elephant underneath. But it's there. And you know that because when you saw the trailer for the movie, your mind started to fill in what the perfect version would be. It already started to... You couldn't do it completely, but you sort of had this bubble start to form, this gaseous sort of... of what that would look like, sort of, the perfect version, the one that was being suggested in your head by those images and how they would add up in the most idealized, maximized form. Then what happened? You went to see the movie, and they didn't get it. They didn't achieve a version that measured up to the sort of one that you'd already have pictured in your head. So you already know what you want to see in a way based on the trailer, and you just have to make a movie that lives up to that. So I will actually write in my head a trailer and just picture shot, image, 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 feel, shot, feel, flow, pace, boom, and then say, I, that movie's out there. Boy, I just got to chip away until I find that. And I think picturing a trailer is a very useful way in some instances to start. Um, what was I going to ask? Predator. <laughs> so this is, uh, Predator, you're going to direct this movie as well, right? Uh, yeah. All right. Here's my question that, I was, that someone asked me to ask in line. Could have been anyone here. Uh, this is what, the fourth Predator movie? Not counting the Alien versus Predator movies? Uh, yeah, it would and, be. And of course, you were the star. P4. You were the star of the first one. 
Thank you. <laughs> Did you know he was in the original Predator? Um, so what do you... I mean, this is... You don't often tackle another property. You don't often tackle something that didn't come immediately from your brain. So what do you bring to a new Predator movie? What's your approach on it? What's the trailer look like for you? Um, it has to feel... I said this in an interview recently. I think it has to feel fresh somehow. And the way that is to me is that, you know, I used to line up to see these summer films, whether it was Wrath of Khan, which blew me away, uh, whether it was, you know, E.T. or even some of the lesser budget films. But there was a feeling in the summer that these are the ones you really want to see and it's worth the wait. You actually get in line and you get excited because they're going to try something fresh and you're going to leave satisfied for having stood the hour or two in line to see it. I thought, I owe audiences that much to give a Predator movie, because they've been pumping them out for like 20 years now. Is, oh, there's another one. You want to see it? I don't know. I guess so. You know. <laughs> Black Hawk Down sold out. You know. um, as opposed to three months out from the movie, say, holy shit, there's a new Predator coming, and I think I want to line up for it. Now, that's a big you know, mantle to take on, because how do you make people see this as a franchise that's brand new again, that's exciting again, that represents that, you know, it earns its status as a summer movie or a tentpole. I think you just stuff it with ideas is what you do. And you try to be true to what excited you about the thing in the first place. And what excited me in the first place was the verisimilitude and the, the, the tension. And it wasn't about creature effects so much as it was just about the approach they took was, you know, Start real, start on Earth, and then something, there's an incursion. Something's wrong. Something's here that shouldn't be. And it's a mystery that plays out. And I think to some extent, recreating that sort of close encounters feel that you had, the sense of wonder at there's been an alien incursion. We know about it. In fact, people have known for years. And you start to peel the mystery away. And what is this thing? You know, In other words, treat it as mysterious and wondrous as opposed to, Hey, Bill, another predator out there. You know, well, just, just let me get my keys, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, I thought the alien got him. No, no, he, he's back Still in the barn. <laughs> he's at the pigs again. <laughs> um, I mean, I would imagine this is the approach you have to take for any new project, right? Is, you got to get yourself excited. Way? Yeah, get yourself excited. Uh, well, about the writing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's important to, like, for instance, the Mandarin thing, man, we try. I, 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 I'm just going <laughs> to. Oh, wait, but hold on. Because we're, they're going to cut out the beginning of me talking uh, mm-hmm. tonight. The Mandarin thing in Iron Man 3 is my favorite fucking thing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On the record. Now, go ahead. Now, there was a, a, an effort made as we started to prepare Iron Man 3. Uh, you know, people like Feige said, boy, I wish we could use the Mandarin. Um, different people in the corporate side were concerned that if we did it as this sort of Asian overlord, especially since we're cultivating Chinese money at that time, that... <laughs> It's, 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 you didn't want to be racist. And, and by the way, things have changed. You know, I, don't subs- I like to read The Phantom, those old 1930s comic books, but it's all full of this yellow peril bullshit, you know? And I don't like that. So you can't do it nowadays. And um, at one point, 
you know, even and, and we thought, well, we could still still make him a, a Mandarin, but just sort of use the iconography of Sun Tzu, the art of war, and sort. Of, but then they thought, well, why not? We're dealing with AIM, which is essentially a think tank anyway. So this idea that he's a cobbled together boogeyman that is the ultimate media presentation, the ultimate scare tactic in a world where we've come to an internet driven by fear, and that the genius behind it knows that and that the Mandarin himself is actually just this broken down actor <laughs> okay so cut to halfway through the movie when that happens and I don't know where they got pitchforks and how they got them in the theater <laughs> but the fans were in revolt now the movie made 1.2 billion dollars so most people like the movie <laughs> But the fans were so important to Marvel that they actually made a follow-up movie just to apologize, in which they said, no, no, there's really a Mandarin, we swear, we're sorry, don't hit us, you know, and... Um, but you're, I mean, you're going to deal with that. They're going to be Predator fans who have this idea in their head about what the Predator is. But I, the only reason I felt bad about the Mandarin is when you reinvent something... You know, like Whiplash with Mickey Rourke. He didn't look like Whiplash from the comic, but it was cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wish we'd come up with a reinvention that was exci- as exciting to the fans as it was to us. Um, it was exciting to the tune of $1.2 billion to most people, <laughs> but not to the hardcore guys. And I don't like to pander, but as we approach the Predator, I really, I, I really want to reinvent, but I want to make people happy. I'm not trying to take the predator and put him in a tutu <laughs> sure. you know uh i want to talk about uh, what was the first uh, piece of writing you got paid for um that would be uh <clears throat> i guess uh, lethal weapon probably yeah it was the was first it? thing i sold yeah how many scripts had you written before that i had written a thing called shadow company which was a vietnam-based horror film didn't get made John Carpenter flirted with it for a while and uh, then I'd written The Monster Squad with my friend Fred did did uh, Shadow Company get you representation how did that work yes. when you started out yeah, yeah that kind of got sent around most of you I, just so you know you, you probably won't sell your first script and get it made it's but that's not to say it isn't a vital part of getting a career because the first script even if it's not perfect, people will like the writing. Um, it gets sent round. It gets to be a good sample piece. And, you know, I had countless meetings where people said, well, we don't really want to make a horror film, but, you know, there's something to this. You really, uh, you seem invested. Would you like to write this other thing we have? And so it's a good way to get in the door. I know very few writers who write a first script and then two years later they're watching it on the screen. That's almost never happens. But that doesn't mean that first script can't come back and get made at some point or that it doesn't entitle you to, you know, a bunch of Hollywood meetings that lead to work for you. So uh, did you, uh, I feel like especially after Lethal Weapon, were you invited to come and pitch on scripts, you know, as so many feature writers are, or were you pursuing the scripts that you wanted to write? And did you have to pitch those or did you just go write them? Um, I was, it was a different time yeah. and spec scripts still sold. So I would go home and I would lock the door and I would do nothing and I would fret and moan and piss and <laughs> say that to myself, I'm a fraud. I can't write. And eventually I'd take, I'd write the end and say, this is shit. <laughs> um, in fact, lethal weapon halfway through, <clears throat> Uh, I, I hated it so much I threw it in the trash. Really? 
And then I was almost in tears a week later. I was so despondent. And what do I do? I, I start over? I, I'm not a writer, I guess. And then I thought, you know what? Just pull Lethal Weapon out. It's either jump out the window or finish this. So why not take it out of the trash and give it a shot? And I finished it, and then it ended up spawning. It was, you know, something that attracted a great deal of attention. But the fact that, you know, I, it was in the trash. I have the initial draft. I sold it, actually, at an auction that's covered in lettuce and coffee grounds. <laughs> because back then I typed, remember. This is, I'm just, there was this thing. It had a ribbon. And if you wanted to make a change to your work, you had to retype the page or get a little cartridge that you plugged in that had white on it that would type it over. Um, and I basically, so out of the trash and into, you know, a, a career. I think that's... Yeah. <laughs> we'll put that on your tombstone. <laughs> but it's, it's never clear. It's never... The, the worst you go, the, the lowest you fall, the, the, the rung upon which you find yourself suspended, breaking, you know, hot, over the... You're a fraction away from everything coming together. It's so, it's so weird. Like, all this stuff, you've been in this boat, this lifeboat for, like, you know, what feels like years, starving, and you're in the boat so long, and you look up, and you don't realize there's people on shore, like, four feet away, waving to you. But you don't see them, because you're so... You learned helplessness of, I'm going to fail... What I'm telling you is when it feels like you're about to fail and give up, you know, you're four feet from shore and they're waiting for you. So don't forget that. Do you, do you still feel that way when you're working on a script? You know, do you feel like it could all go away? Yeah, well, it almost did, you know. Um, I, had, I had, my career almost slid off the map from like 2004 to 2009. I was working on things, but there was just nothing happening and I was running out of money and... Um, it was it was bad, you know. There have been points where I thought I'm not going to work anymore. No one knows who I am. I'm old. <laughs> well, and, and as we said, this is this is the thing that can happen, right? There's always a new flavor. There's a new flavor, but if you just stay, you know, true. If your side of the street gets a sweeping once in a while and stays clean, and and just that's what you do is ignore what everyone else is about and just sort of tidy yourself, you'd be surprised what comes to you. And every time I thought I was out of it someone would offer me an opportunity to get back in. Were you creating material during this time? Mm. I was, um, yeah, I was, I was writing, I wrote a treatment, a 62-page treatment with my friend Chuck for Lethal Weapon 5 that uh, would have been, I think, a very good movie. It didn't go. You want to tell us about it? Um, <clears throat> nothing to tell. It, it, it was interesting. It was uh, essentially an older Riggs and Murtaugh in New York City during the worst blizzard in East Coast history, fighting a team of expert Blackwater guys from Afghanistan who have been smuggling antiquities. So, Why would this not get traction? <laughs> I'm totally serious. Because now he's way too old for this shit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was this... No, it would have... That was part of the story, and um, we had a young character that actually counterpointed them. Um, but I didn't want to do what people do when they're trying to transition 
which is they sort of put the two older guys in the movie, but really it's about their son. And he's going to take over, and we're going to do a spin-off. And that, fuck that. You know, the, if they're going to be in the movie, they're going to be in the movie. I don't care how old they are, you know. So, so what do you, why do you think people were not responding to the material you were coming up with in this period? Um, I mean, you must have ideas about it. Well, that, one, that one's like Mel Gibson was, didn't know that he wanted to do it or not. And he would, there was negotiations, and you know, some things happened with Mel. Mel is a great... It's an interesting story, because Mel... Mel, uh, Mel, I don't believe anybody should be held accountable for anything they say while drunk. If you say it's sober, that's one thing. But if you're drunk, I mean, I would, I would say the most heinous things to you <laughs> back in my drinking days. Um, but unfortunately, what he said while drunk was enough to yank him from projects. I'd worked on The Cold Warrior was another one, and that was with Mel. So I lost both of those. Um, I wrote Doc Savage with my friends, and that sort of sat there. Everything was sitting there. And that, what was your take on Doc Savage? Like you, this is your this is your bread and butter. Yeah, it's what I grew up on. Yeah. yeah so what what was your take on that? Mm. Well, basically, he's a Doc is is a perfect man, a physically perfect, mentally adept guy, trained from birth to be a soldier, a scientist. And everything that a human being you know, can achieve, the only problem is he has no social skills whatsoever, to the point of being potentially even autistic you know, in his actions. So you have a guy who is a superhero, but he just does, he's not smooth. You know? <laughs> and, but you, it was to take a guy who wasn't smooth and had this real old-fashioned mentality and just almost sexless in its way because he'd never... He'd been told never get involved with women. So he almost has a teenage view of women, the shy, at the same time that he can kill 17 people. Then the girl will say, thank you, because, you know. And he, so he doesn't grab the girl at the end of the killing spree. If anything, you know, he's obsessed with how during the killing spree, he, you know, he took too long or his, his leg was bent or... It's that sort of programmed human being learning to become human again was our take. That's fine. Were there other films that got away that you you never Uh, got to make? hmm. Stories you were dying to tell? No. Um, I've been very lucky. And, you know, we made a bunch of movies. I've, I've started directing, and that was a very benevolent experience. The film that got away was when I was so upset back in 19... 99, because no one took me seriously. I was this high-priced hack. And at the time, my idol mentor was this guy, James L. Brooks, who'd done broadcast news, Terms of Endearment, you know. Um, and uh, <laughs> he deserves more, but I'll allow it. Yeah, if he were here, yeah. <laughs> I'd be out there. It's he... I started writing what I wanted to do. I said, I'm going to prove that I can do this. I'm going to write a romantic comedy full of insight, laughter, love, hope, and, and transcendence. And it's going to be as, like Jim Brooks. And Jim's going to love it. I'm going to prove to everybody that I'm a real writer. So I sat down to write a romantic comedy and uh, real poignant, sort of bittersweet. And at first, Jim said, you know what? 
good on you, man. You're doing a great job. But about 80 pages in, Jim read it and said, dude, I don't know what you're, I don't know where this is going. I thought, what? He says, it's, it doesn't, it, it's all over the place. It's fragmented. There's good stuff in it, but it's just not, it's not working. And I was crushed. Here's my mentor. Here's the guy I idolized saying, your attempt at doing something different isn't working. You can't hack it. You, you're, not, you're not succeeding. So I went home and I agonized. It was one of those dark nights of the soul where I thought, should I even keep writing? And then I thought, you know what? There is good things in it. Let's, let's be real here. There's good things in those 80 pages. And finally, I remember the moment when I said to myself, oh, fuck it. I just, I have to put in a murder. <laughs> And then I can do it. <laughs> well, do you, do you get... I mean, there, are, there is comfort in those genre trappings, mm-hmm. right? As you can put all the relationship stuff that is in a James Brooks movie into this yeah. genre. And piece. it became this... That's why Kiss Kiss Bang Bang seems like it's a hybrid because half of it is the romantic comedy I started to write and the other half is the gay detective and the mystery. And um, it, was, it was just me switching gears halfway through and then I revamped everything to make it a mystery. Mm-hmm. But that's the only way I could finish it. Sure. Oh, totally makes sense. Let's, let's talk about some of these other movies that were made, uh, and then we'll get questions from you guys. If you want to start lining up, now would be a good, good time to do it. Um, Monster Squad was early on, and that was, it was one of the first scripts you wrote, or co-wrote, right? Yeah, that was, that was with Fred Decker. Do you remember the impetus for that? It was a fun movie. The impetus for Monster Squad was as simple as we really loved this thing called Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. <laughs> And what was so great about Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein that became obvious to us at the time was that even though Abbott and Costello were never, never funnier than they are in that movie, the monsters weren't played for laughs. They were scary. I thought, that's, that's the way we want to go. The monsters are real. The kids are funny. And also, instead of Abbott and Costello, we said, you know, it's going to be the Spanky and our gang kids, the little rascals. So it was the little rascals meet the monsters. Um, Except the monsters aren't played for laughs. I love in that movie the obsessive adherence to monster rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was it, do, you remember, do you remember discussing this with uh, yeah, Fred? absolutely. We we talked about how if you were a kid, we, you know. Because I used to write monster stories when I was a kid. I would in school, and there were very specific rules. Sand monster could only be killed by turning him <laughs> to glass, you know, and. Um, the rules are so important when you're a kid. Yeah, they are. And so similarly, even if you... The, the question was always on our minds. If you blew up Wolfman, wouldn't that kill him? And in the movie, no. It doesn't. It's a silver bullet. To hell with you. That's it. Yeah. So, um, what was your involvement in Lethal Weapon 2? Lethal Weapon 2, I did a draft of the script with a friend of mine, Warren Murphy, who was a wonderful writer that did the Destroyer series of books. Um, But it was clear at the end of our draft, which was actually pretty melancholy, that that wasn't really the way they wanted to go. So there's a lot of elements that are in Lethal Weapon 2. There's a still story by credit, and... You know, I recognize things when I watch Lethal Weapon 2 from the script that we wrote, but the tone is totally different. What is the, I haven't seen that in a long time. What is the tone? Well, the tone, for instance, something I would never do in a movie. There's a car that crashes, and a surfboard comes off the top, flies through the air, kills a guy, and Mel Gibson says, total wipeout. You know, I, I would never do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a dumb joke. <laughs> Was... 
And is, is it because the the studio saw a different kind of franchise here? That I don't think it was the studio. I think that um, I think Dick Donner is just a lot more cheerful than I am. He's. <laughs> Well, you look at his movie. He likes comedy. Yeah. And truthfully, I mean, look how many rules they broke in terms of writing and structure. There's a scene in that movie where Joe Pesci <laughs> says, they fuck you with the drive-thru. They fuck you with the drive They left off by ketchup. They fuck you with... Has nothing to do with any part of the story. You could lift it and no one would ever know. But they did it as an improv. And that's what they wanted to yeah. do was just get them together and let the guys be guys and have fun. Mm-hmm. And... I respect that because Donner did it very well. It was a really successful movie. It's just not the kind of thing that, you know, I really do is they fuck you with the drive-thru. I mean, that's... Right. Well, your, your movies are these lean storytelling machines. I mean, there is nothing you can take out and still have it uh, make sense as a movie. <sighs> yeah, that's because we're always trying to stuff and dis- distill. It's a game of Tetris, you know. And that's why scenes need to do two things, not one. Because you have two scenes, look, you just wasted pages. You're going to get to 130 and wish you had that. So isn't there a way you can take those and make everything happen where the scene does two pur- serves two purposes? And you Tetris it down until you've just got the distilled tightest version. And that's just the way to get the most material in. It's the most economical way. Um, my Nightmare, which I can't believe. I saw a film that a friend of mine did, and I said, why, did, why are these scenes here? He goes, well, it was only 80 minutes long, and so we just let the things play out so we could fill the time. Thought, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, the idea that you're filling time as opposed to desperately going, what do I lose? You know? You have to jam the thing tight, packed with ideas and with stuff. Is that uh, that sort of, you know, Tetrising something you discover during the writing, during the outlining, during the rewriting? When does that really happen for you? When does it start clicking into place? It starts clicking when you're like, you still have 40 pages left and you're on page 110. <laughs> you go, oh, no. And something's got yeah. to give here. So isn't it funny, by the way, that when you set out to write a script, you're on page one, you say, I can't fill 120 <laughs> pages. And then by page 120, you go, I need 30 more. It just seems to be the way it goes. Was uh, The Last Boy Scout a reaction to seeing Lethal Weapon 2 and and what can happen with that kind of film? Um, The Last Boy Scout was just an attempt to do a private eye film. Uh, I I just didn't see that there were a lot of private eye films around being made. Um, Night Moves is a great one. And uh, to some extent, you know... I'm not a big fan of The Long Goodbye because I'm such a big Chandler fan that, you know, here's a gem. Piss on it. You know, why would you do that? It's not a Chandler movie. It's an Altman movie. It's an Altman movie. But it's like, the Mona Lisa's great, but how about we just, you know, it's like a friend of mine said this about 3D. He said he didn't like 3D in movies, and I agree with him. He said, the point is you can take the Mona Lisa and you can put the smile to come out here, you know, the eye. (laughs) It's not going to fix it. It's it's good. Don't mess with it. And the idea of revisionist stuff, in fact, the way I feel about the long goodbye and the way it sort of violates Chandler is probably the way those Iron Man fans feel about the way I violated what to them was the sacrosanct entity, the Mandarin, you know? I'm glad we got to that tonight. I'm glad we worked that well, out. Well, I'm not, you know, I just feel bad for I, I, I don't want to say I apologize because, you know, no, Marvel you already shouldn't. did that. No, you shouldn't. It's great. But I'll tell you what, <laughs> I do feel bad that you didn't feel the same excitement yeah. and see the, get that same kind of rubbing your hands together feel 
uh, at the context and the and the sort of texture that that gave the movie that instead of enjoying a fun twist, you saw it as a violation to the fans who feel that way. I'm sorry that that happened, and I'm sorry you felt that way. I uh, I kind of like it, and. Uh, <laughs> All right, we're going to get some questions from the audience here. Hi, uh, just very simply, why Christmas? <laughs> <Thank you>. <laughs> <clears throat> the first time I saw Christmas used in a movie was uh, as a backdrop was the Three Days of the Condor, this uh, Sidney Pollock film. And it just struck me against the very sort of tense and serious uh, events and being chased and pursued through New York, and just to have carolers on the corner, you know, in the background singing, and this sort of muted sort of joy. Uh, it re- I realized that the snow and Christmas and all these things provide this sort of odd hush. It's very retrospective. It's a reflective time, Christmas, where you sort of look at where your life has been, how you got to where you are, and the regrets come out. If you're lonely, you tend to be lonelier at Christmas. If you're sad, you're morose. And similarly, if you're a happy person, you can be, you know, as peaceful and joyous and wonderful. But it does cater to the outsider, I think, the guy looking in the window at the family inside that's happy. It separates and isolates the people who don't fit in. And at the same time, it can be peaceful for them, too. And it represents magic in a way. The the hush and the stop that Christmas brings us to each year, in which we sort of shake hands with the people we normally wouldn't fraternize with and we're supposed to have something different in our hearts at Christmas and you can find little bits of it especially in the sunny LA and I I have like I was walking on Christmas Eve and I saw someone uh, with a Santa hat walking under a distant street light and then I stopped next to this Mexican lunch wagon which had a string of lights and this little tiny broken plastic Madonna with a candle inside it and I thought that is so that's like a little bit of unearthed magic that represents in its way something every bit as evocative as that 40-foot Christmas tree on the White House lawn. It was so beautiful and, and, and lonely and just personal. The idea of standing in the middle of the night on a street corner, just staring at a little decoration like that with no one around, it sums up loneliness, but it also summed up peace for me. Well, it is in, in micro you know, that thing that you talked about, about the children's literature that you loved, right? Yeah. It's, it's a mix of feelings. It's bittersweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a question you don't get asked about screenwriting that you wish people would ask? Yeah. Thank you. It's an interesting... Um, what gem, what <laughs> piece of deathless advice is uh, <laughs> burbling in my subconscious? I don't know, except... Uh, I would say that it's an act of faith, but I would also say, truthfully, the biggest problem I see in screenwriting is the lack of community in the sense that it's a very lonely thing to do. You know, often as not, you're in an attic, it's late at night, and you're typing something that, you know, for for all you know, the, the, the sole audience for which will be your mom, you know. <laughs> Um, and there's still this little spark you're trying to maintain and, and, and preserve of faith that this was worth doing, that this was important. And I think what helps is the people around you, a writer's group, 
surrounding yourself with like-minded people like I had and friends in college before we even knew we wanted to do this we would always argue about movies or we'd always get together late at night and make some little short or it was just a, it was a dialogue and there was no competitiveness I'd say hey Fred you know that bit with the cigarette that the character can I can I steal that from my script go oh, yeah go ahead and it was not I'll sue you you know there was none of that <laughs> it was just friends who had like-minded ambitions and a common thread, a love of film craft, and, an, and a contentious environment in which you could argue, uh, discuss, and ultimately put forward your views and get reflected back at you input. That was great. And then when each of us succeeded, we were able to reach down the ladder and sort of help the guy under us up. Fred helped me, and I helped another guy, and that's how we all got agents. So loneliness, you get the group together. You know, if you're not in a writer's group, join with form a writer's group. It's the way to make it less painful. It's so lonely. I mean, if, you, if you're in a boat that's sinking, there's a hole and you're going to drown. There's a guy next to you. Maybe he'll drown too. But it's like, yeah, this is terrible. Yeah, me, I commiserate. Yes, it is terrible. You're with somebody. You get this, you know, you get the hug. And you need the hug. I think we all need that support and surrounding. And so the idea of being this lone maverick guy who's always very protective of material or woman, sorry, and is, I'd say just, just be generous with your material. Just be generous with your ideas. Mostly, people aren't going to sue you. People call up, and I had this guy from Michigan call. Me, Mr. Black, this is John from Michigan. Say, okay. Um, he said, yeah, I got an idea for a screenplay. It's a real corker, man. It's a real good screenplay. I'd like you to write it with me. I'll give you half. I said, well, John, you know, thank God you called because I'm so dry and so without any hint of ambition or ideas that you couldn't have come at a better time. I said, well, what is the idea? He goes, well, I can't tell you. How do I know you won't steal it? I'm like, John, you know, at that point, it's like, why, what's going on? At the same time that he wants my favor, he's intent on being suspicious. I'll steal it. No one's going to steal your screenplay. How many lawsuits? It doesn't happen. Just be generous. Be cooperative. It's you have friends. <laughs> this, this, this suggests to me um, to to ask why why not TV? You know that is the most collaborative writing medium. I've tried to get into TV. I just don't understand it. <laughs> what can we tell you? <laughs> like, well, f for instance, we just lost a show at Amazon because it wasn't serialized enough. Even the more we tried to serial, you know, um, every TV show I know, if you see the ad campaign on the billboard, it's a guy standing there, and behind <laughs> him is a V of other people. Yeah. <laughs> you know... The same Asian guy with a different face this time. There's the, the Latino girl, the black guy. Sure. And then you know, they're, but it's, they're all fanned out. They're all predictably cast. And it's the same group of other characters. And then throughout a 10-episode arc with one villain per season, 10 chapters of an ongoing book, it's all serialized. And you see all the main characters fall in love, and you follow their subplots. And then there's that horrible thing I hate where, they, like, two minutes from the end of a TV show, they all go home at night, and you hear the music. Say something, I'm breaking up with you. And they all get ready for bed at night. You know, you see one character looking at the other, picks up the phone, and it doesn't make the call, you know. And it's just, it's shit. So... 
you know we have better options now. <laughs> you have more than three channels, right? No, I've looked at cable, but cable is even, even worse in terms of serializability. If you, you couldn't do the Rockford Files, for instance, on cable because there's no V of guys or girls behind Rockford. There's like two other people. I talked to someone today who said they turned down his TV show because they only had four characters, and until they got to seven, it wasn't proper for an actual you know, serializable TV show. This may boil down to just a, a yes or no answer and uh, not to bring up Lethal Weapon 2 again. Um, towards the end of uh, Iron Man 3, the climactic battle sequence at the uh, docks, was that kind of subconsciously thinking of the end of Lethal Weapon 2 where you had black and white guy, black and white guy, docks? Um, actually, it may, it may have, there may be a subconscious component, but no, because what we wanted, uh, the original script had an oil rig where everything took place. There was a 747 crashed in, into an oil rig at the end, and the whole sea was on fire, and there was all this, and they said, you know, this is great, guys, but water's tough, and even if we do a real oil rig, every angle, because they're open to the air, will have to be a replacement shot, will have to be a green screen water shot, and the budget, the figure came in was exorbitant for what that would cost. So we had to go find a real place that looked real and was pretty much already there, not something we would create. And we drove and flew and helicoptered all over until we found that port. And the idea of a, one of the Mandarin stunts being this oil ship that had spilled uh, you know, millions of gallons of oil and that they were going to use it as a symbol of why this president should be extinguished. I just thought it was... And also, we went there at night. I wasn't sold in the day, and at night they lit it up, and I went, oh, boy. We can, and we can build pieces of this on stage, and we can treat this like a tinker toy. And all these ladders and catwalks and everything, it felt very mechanistic. It, uh, you know, I, I just... It wasn't, no. Okay. <laughs> Has the way... You write a script or put together a script, changed since you started directing. Do you think of it differently? Yeah, I, I'm very aware of chaff. Mm-hmm. I'm very aware of stuff that might not make it. So before where I'd writing and I just throw stuff in, now I go, ah, oh, you know what? That's going to get on the, that's, that's going on the cutting room floor. I, in, at the end of the day, I know that if we shoot this, we'll take half a day to do it, and I'm probably going to end up losing it in the edit. So that's what changes. Okay. Uh, when you were writing the treatment for uh, the Lethal Weapon 5 script you talked about earlier, um, how did you envision the older versions of the Lethal Weapon characters? Um, they were a little slower and a little more reflective, but they were still themselves. I mean, basically, it was... I mean, think about it. You're dealing with a guy, if you do a modern-day Lethal Weapon, and it would have come out in 2010. So... A survivor of the Vietnam conflict, even if he was 20 at the time, is getting up there by the time he's, it's 2010. Um, we had to take that into account, but one of the things we really liked was finding the little bits of humanity that come with getting old and still touching base with the fact that he's a dangerous man when he needs to be or wants to be. And also, it goes so hand-in-hand hand with the urban western that, to me, is, is lethal weapon. The old gunslinger who has to put on his belt one last time, you know. That's what we wanted, was the cops who have been relegated to sort of desk duty and have these fond memories of the antiquated gunslinger days. And they say, you know what? These people nowadays are not equipped right now to deal with this, and we do know how to do this, even if we're a little creaky. Let's put on our gun belts one last time. So. Is there an element um, in your new movie, The Nice Guys? Are they connected, uh, The Nice Guys and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? 
it's there's no continuity if that's what you mean it's more of a I, yeah the, the two are the the tone is the same if in fact the characters are different but pretty much if you if you saw kiss kiss bang bang there's a lot of meta stuff there's narration and flashbacks in time and this is more straightforward storytelling but it's the same tone the effort is always there to stand the convention on their head. That's what I, when you're doing, like one of my favorite things at Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, you've always seen the scene where a guy won't give you information and someone takes a gun, puts a bullet, spins, he goes, click, and he goes, okay, 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 what are you, crazy man, of course. You know, well, what if it just hit the bullet on that one <laughs> first, you know, <laughs> it's like, what the fuck did you just do? <laughs> and so we did that, and we do that in the nice guys too, that kind of thing. Is there, you know, we've, we've talked about your influences with these sort of pulp detective uh, novels, and we've gotten to see from you these evolutions of that kind of story, the, the tarnished detective story, and these sort of pulp pastiches. Would you ever try to adapt one of these stories? Does that interest you? If I found the right one, I would, I would very much like to. The problem is that some of them are really great, but they're just essentially people in rooms. Others have a great ending, but not necessarily a great beginning. What I have done is go mine them for yeah. clues, little bits and clues. And like I bought a piece off of uh, Brett Halliday. There's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has a little clue in it that comes from uh, Bodies Are Where You Find Them, the 1944 Brett Halliday novel that nobody remembers. But I liked the clue, and I thought, you know, it's good. Let's contacted the granddaughter, said, I'd like to use this. I'll give you a little bit of money. And there it was. And then we did the same thing in The Nice Guys. We found a clue that we loved from a 1974 Brett Halliday movie, book called uh, Blue Murder. And that's in there. So I, I feel like, in a way, I'm collaborating with my childhood idols. Yeah. These guys have been dead for 50 years, but I'm still, like, ripping them off. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. What is your practical advice to anybody who wants to switch to um, a writing at this time, like a midlife change of career? Oh, so you just had the bug. It's, it's tough because it, it has to do with practicality on some level. Uh, how are you going to eat? You know, um, If you live alone, that's great. If you have a family, maybe they can take up the slack. But the passion that has convinced you that you want to write you, I would say this, get some material under your belt. Don't just quit and spend a year uh, trying to flaunt the one script that you may have written. If you're going to do it, really do it. Take the time before you commit to prepare. That means having your best work, at least two scripts, preferably three, completed. So that if someone does come up to you and say, you want to be a writer? Well, what do you got? You go, here you go. <laughs> One, two, three, and they're good, all of them. And that's what you want. And beyond that, it's, it's really just practicality. It's, it's, if you can take the time to block out a week and take off work and say, I'm going to my cabin or a cabin, and I'm going to sit and see if this is serious. I did this. My whole career started because I came home from my temp job one day in 1984 and started writing. And I showed the scene to my brother, and he said, It's terrible. And I stopped. I would have stopped writing for good, but I sat down the next day, and once again, I'm over the typewriter. Typewriter. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't want to be there because I thought I couldn't write, so I was just, oh, God. I said, just hit a key. And then my finger literally poised in the air. I said, hit a key. I said, T. The 
clouds unleash rain lashing in torrents across the character steps forward opens the car door oh, i hate doing this i hate to uh, keep typing keep typing what do you uh, well, okay well wait a minute he says that <laughs> that'd be a funny joke if the, <laughs> if he said that that'd be cool yeah all right wait a minute and once again my finger poised over the tiki wanting nothing more than to stop and pretend i can't write and never do it again it was one stroke of a key that gave me a career. And if I hadn't put, hit the T, I wouldn't be here. I would not have any career. Everything I've got came from not wanting to and just hitting T. That's my advice. Yeah. Thank you. Would you ever write a novel or have you already secretly under a fake name? No, uh, my, I idolized my brother Terry, my older brother, and he'd written some paperback originals like westerns and stuff, and I thought he was the greatest thing, and, and he's, he is. And um, I aspire to it, but it takes so much time, and I always feel like those times, now that I'm assigned myself or committed to the directing aspect, would be better served just giving myself... I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to live forever. I mean, honestly, I got the first whiff, the wafting smell of mortality crept into my life. And I realized, you know, when I left, for instance, I was in uh, Wichita, Kansas, and I drove out and I thought, I used to just always think I'll come back here and this is the third time. That might, that might be the last time I'm in Wichita. I might die before I ever get back there. And so I'm 54 years old, but what have I got, 20 years before no one will hire me? If that. 20 years. That's maybe one, two, that's, let's say six, seven movies, if I'm lucky. I got to measure that time very carefully. Now, if there's a break and I want to write a novel, I'd love to. But in the meantime, uh, you know, I need to get on a movie set, get laid. Absolutely. <laughs> Your priorities are right. Well, age, man, yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that a novel takes too much time. How long does a, a typical screenplay take for you? Typical screenplay, uh, first draft is three months. And um, then the infinite process begins, you know, to try to harrow it down and winnow it into something that people are, you know. There's a lot of snake oil, you know, involved in selling people on the fact, no, it's ready to go. Really? Uh, Yeah, you know. So. uh, Which script are you proudest of? And if, and is there a script that you're not so proud of? Mm. What's your biggest shame? (laughs) Script related. I, I'm, I'm most, most proud of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang just because it took me forever. And it's so intricate and everything relates to everything else. There's, if, you know, I'll, I'll watch it myself and go, holy fuck, that's a setup from the. I didn't, I don't remember. Damn. And uh, as far as things I'm, I'm ashamed of, I'm not ashamed of, of much anything because I always put my 100% in. Um, Last Action Hero, I did not like the finished product, I will say that. Um, so I, I've not seen that movie since it came out. You know, people have retrospectives, and if it's Kiss Kiss or if it's uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, sometimes I'll show up and I'll say hi to the people watching the movie. But Last Action Hero, I don't go. I just don't like it. I was going to ask you, would you, what advice do you give about structure? Uh, structure is interesting. I mean, everyone has it differently. It's just it. It. I think you feel it as. I could say that, the, you know, if I were trying to sell you on my screenwriting class, I would talk about three-act structure. And, and then I can envision some hand going, wait, don't you, are you saying there's a beginning, a middle, and an end? 
That's, uh, yes. That's, I mean, there is an extent to which all this talk is really just about the fact that you're finding a shape that feels right. Um, most people who see movies can sort of concoct it by feel, by intuition. They understand that things are going on a bit, that it's time to move to the next. Mostly it's keeping things motivated and proactive and that everyone's moving either toward something or away from something. In life, you're moving toward or away from something. That's called your motivation. And I think that it applies to screenplays as well. You want to make sure that people are propelled that the story always surprises, twists and turns. I'll tell you, structure, here's the two things to remember. Setups and payoffs and reversals. If you know those, you're golden. Uh, people know about reversals, right? Well, the best example I have of, of reversals in a movie, and you'll see it endlessly in Lawrence Kasdan's work, for instance. Let's say you're... Uh, I heard a joke, and the joke was on a show called Hee Haw. And I was growing up, and the joke goes roughly... There's two guys talking. One says, you know, I heard, you hear about old Jeb. And says, no, what happened? Well, Jeb was flying the plane. He fell out of an airplane. He goes, oh, my God, that's terrible. He goes, well, no, actually, that's good because, he, well, he had a parachute on. He says, oh, well, that's good. Well, no, that's bad because the parachute didn't open. Oh, that's bad. Well, no, that's, that's good because he had a reserve chute. Well, that's good. No, it's bad because that one was it had a hole. It didn't function. Now he's plummeting. It's a plummeting. That's bad. No, that's good because he looks down. There's a haystack under him. Well, that's good. He says, no, that's bad because there's a pitchfork sticking up out of the haystack with the tines you know, pointed up. He says, well, that's bad. No, that's good. He missed the pitchfork. Well, that's good. No, that's bad. He missed the haystack. <laughs> and so you, you give it and take it away give it and take it away give it and take it away William Goldman talks about the first reversal he ever wrote was this, there's an elaborate five minute scene of a guy in a cage trying to reach the key on the wall and he finally like ties this together the broom doesn't work but if he ties his pants to his shoe and like loops it and throws it and finally but then the key's out of reach so now he does this and he drags it slowly and he reaches and he gets the key and it's the wrong key it doesn't fit <laughs> It's a twist. People like twists. They like it when the plot reverses. Similarly, they like setups and payoffs that they don't understand as a setup at the time, but then come back later. Um, my, <laughs> my textbook example, if you everybody see The Long Kiss Goodnight? <clears throat> There's a scene where Gina Davis's daughter breaks her arm, so she has to wear a cast. This little girl wears a cast, and and when Gina Davis goes off to her mission, she says, look, I'm going to give you a candle, and I want you to light it for me, okay? And as long as that candle's burning, it means I'm still love you, I still love you, and I'll be there for you, okay? And she goes, so she gives her that, and then uh, she also hands her, uh, at some point, a, a doll, and there's gasoline in the doll or whatever, yeah. <laughs> the point being, they're locked in a meat freezer... <laughs> There's no way out. And so she goes to her daughter, who you, whose retainer you saw earlier. She says, open up. And she takes the retainer, and she gouges a hole under the door. And using the retainer as a funnel, she pours gasoline under the door. And then she trails it back. And now all she needs to blow up the place is a spark. And she starts hitting the floor, and she can't get a spark. And she starts crying, gives up. And the daughter says, Mommy, I keep these matches to light your candle. Reaches in the cast and pulls out a pack of matches. And she, mother just looks at her. And there's instantly the roles reverse. The kid saves the day. Mom takes the matches. She says, you want to buy a dog? She goes, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and blows them up. And it's that, 
But the matches were able to be there because of the cast where you could hide them. And the cast was there because of a scene earlier that you didn't think was going to come back about her breaking her arm. So, and you never thought that the retainer was going to be used in any way, you know. And hopefully you didn't know there was gasoline inside the pee doll. So every step of it was a setup that was paid off. It's funny, um, Long Kiss Goodnight is my favorite. So I was just curious, was that a spec, or like, what was the inspiration for that? It's one of my favorite female characters. <clears throat> that, was, that was a spec. I was, a, you know, uh, I was at a low point. I wrote it with a man in the lead, and then halfway through it wasn't working, and I thought the only... Uh, it hit me, if a woman was in the lead, the script would work. And so I, I sold it as a spec script. I sold it for a tremendous amount of money. That's the one that caused the big... Uh, face-burning-off backdraft uh, from the writer's community. It, uh, you know what? If I'd had a man in it, it might have made more money. That's interesting. I still love the movie, but they told me, don't put a man in it, I said, or a woman in it. I said, I have to. It's the only way it works. Why, what, what was the difference for you? I don't know. It's just writing it with a man didn't work. It became a stupid amnesia story. Hmm. But writing it as a woman who's uh, desperately trying to forgive herself for her sins by living the American dream as a housewife, but keeps accidentally like throwing the knife in the middle of chopping the carrots, you know, and she realizes that there's this beast sleeping. It was better as a woman than a man because everyone expects it from the man. Uh, Something novel to it for sure. Yeah. Hey, what was the motivation for setting the nice guys in the 70s? Is it just the type of story that you wanted to do, or is there something about 1970s Los Angeles that speaks to life in 2016? Well, yeah, we were talking earlier about um, the 70s as being a window onto an era, something that private eye movies do very well. They have a timelessness to them because they always have... It's the feel of the detective story that's important, but the circumstances of the era will change. For instance, Chinatown has the whole water grab and San Gabriel Valley thing to it, which was current in the 30s. The 70s seemed to me a wonderful time. When we talked about the crust of smog in L.A., um, the pornography, the Hollywood sign, all these things that were problems. Porn and smog were two problems, and we actually found a loose plot in The Nice Guys that managed to encompass both of them (laughs) in a mystery, you know? And so it's really about just opening up a little window onto an appropriate era that gives you the timelessness you need to tell a detective story and the specificity of taking people back to something they may or may not remember, but they're glad they learned about it. Uh, remind us when The Nice Guys comes out. Um, yeah, it comes out on the 20th. Do you see your characters before you write them? Do you have the vision? Or do you see them when you write them? I always have the characters swirling. And they, they're not actors. They're, they're, you know, when you read a novel, I'd be very surprised if the people in this room say, yeah, when I read, I picture Paul Newman or I picture Brad Pitt. Mostly, it's just this weird amalgam, isn't it, of the things that we've seen in our lives may look a little bit like Dad and a little bit like someone from TV, but it's a face that we assign to the characters as we read novels. Uh, And that's sort of what it is for me, is just finding little bits of those characters. And when you can feel them, you can write them. Uh, I'm at my happiest when I have a moment, a reflective moment, usually when no one's around, where I accidentally step into character for a second and become... I thought, fuck, what did I just do? I just felt something weird, and I just said this crappy thing to him, and I just caught a bit of it as an actor. I just caught that character for a second. So I know he's in there. And similarly, 
if you have an old curmudgeon in a script and a young guy who's really impetuous and they're arguing the whole time, it's a psychological thing, isn't it? I mean, it's your, it's your subconscious. It's the part of you that knows what he's doing and takes pride in, you know, traditional values. And then it's the little upstart, rebellious part of you. And they're arguing. If there's a gay character in a script, because part of me is gay. If there's a you know, American, Native American character, it's probably because there's a part of me that responds to that kind of outsider status that we've assigned those people in this country. It's, there's always going to be something that your subconscious is trying to burble outward, in the, in, and it will acquire a face on the way up. And as it pops with that face, it's actually a character you put in your script, but it's a part of you. It's a part of your brain. Everyone's in there arguing. And so, you know, you get a chance to really just, by inventing characters have them fight over the things that your mind in your subconscious is already fighting over. Uh, let's, let's wrap up just by uh, talking about movies for a minute. Uh, what were movies that you grew up loving? What stuff that maybe this crowd hasn't seen that you can recommend to them? Likewise, what are good, good movies to watch for people who want to write movies? Um, some of my favorites, man. I mean... There's one that stands head and shoulders that bestrides the field like a colossus. Um, And that's The Exorcist. Um, There were very few films that when you watch them 40 years after they were made, they're as riveting and as timeless that you don't see any... The hairstyles may be slightly different, but you don't see it as an old movie. Jaws is another one. Um, A little more dated, but never... Every bit as effective, Dirty Harry. Sweet Smell of Success, Brilliant Noir. Um, Kramer versus Kramer, oddly, one of my favorites. I don't know if you ever saw that. What, what do you like about Kramer versus Kramer? I just, That's a great movie. I think it, it took something which you seemed like you couldn't make a movie about, which was a divorce, and, and it fused it with an almost Spielbergian sense of the everyday, and you saw these people go through their lives, and there was never a moment that was false. I always believed, especially that kid, every single moment. It was saying, if you want to look at this, we're going to show you what this really looks like. There were no punches pulled. And it was hilarious, too. There was a lot of humor in it. Um, as far as you know, action movies go or adventure, there have been some good ones, but you know, to me, Die Hard is, is flawless, you know? Uh, except for Alexander Goodenough, you know, hanging by his neck, you know, with his eyes bulging out and then coming out later. Um, <laughs> These are good answers. Have you seen anything lately that uh, you've gotten excited about that you can recommend? Yeah, a lovely Asian with a tattoo. Um, <laughs> is that how you want to end this? <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't think so. <laughs> Please ask me anything. I'll give you one more chance. <laughs> <All right. laughs> the last thing I saw that knocked me out, um, it's all about what elicits from you an emotional response. And yeah, I can see a lot of superhero movies. I like the superhero movies, but... Then you see something like Dallas Buyers Club, and it just kills you, you know. Or you see um, Inside Out, even. I loved Inside Out. It just, it, you know, when, and it's by the numbers. It's set up payoff reversal. Everything we talked about, it's almost formulaic. But when her, that childhood friend waves goodbye to her, the imaginary friend, man, oh, just fucking kills you, you know. Um, <laughs> 
Shane Black, everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Pleasure. We did it. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks to everyone at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics. Thanks to Zach, who made the lights and sound go. Thanks to Adrian. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Thank <laughs> you.